0: To me, it's always fun to hear about couples, whether younger or older, to tell of how they first met, what happened, where they met one another, who initiated what in the conversation, who asked who out, who gave whose number to what. It's always adorable to hear couples banter about, no, I said hello first. No, I, I said, for I saw you from across the room. I was the one who spoke first, or I got your number from a friend. He says, he asked me out, but I said that we should be or that we should get together the first time. It's always great. And at some point, there was an act. At some point, there was a phone call. There was a question. And there was, even after that agreed-upon time when you might meet, there was an arrival, if someone had to show up what if they didn't open the door what if they didn't go to the restaurant now when it comes to you becoming a christian think about that when it comes to you becoming a christian what happened what were the circumstances that happened for you to become a christian what made you a christian maybe let me change it up a little bit if you're here and you're not a christian but you're here, what would you think or what would you need to happen? What would need to happen for you to say, okay, I believe what they believe. I'm a believer in Jesus. I'm a Christian. Now, amazingly, the Bible tells all of us exactly what happened for us to become Christians. Our stories are really the same, even though, you know, yours might happen at camp, or yours might happen through circumstances in your life, yours might happen after something amazing or just before something amazing. The Bible actually tells all of us Christians how we Christians became Christians. And so, I think it's extremely helpful to view the Bible, and that's what I've been doing for the last several weeks, and there's one more after this. I think it's really helpful to read the Bible or see the Bible through a certain set of lenses that allow us to see what's clearly there. It's, it, it's a doctrinal pursuit or a theological pursuit of understanding how is the Bible laid out. And once you kind of grasp these, it becomes enlivening in real ways to understand what God is unfolding for us in the Scriptures. I think it's extremely helpful to view the Bible through a certain lens, understanding that through doctrinal pursuit that it is actually God who is in charge of everything. I think that's one of those distinct lenses or pair of glasses that you might have. As you read from the beginning of the Scriptures all the way to the end, you might ask yourself, okay, who's in charge here at creation? Who's in charge here at the Exodus? Who's in charge here as they're wandering the desert? Who's in charge here at these prophetic words? Who's in charge here as Jesus walks on the water? Who's in charge here when God comes back? Now, a summary of the last couple of weeks, if you're new with us, we started in some ways not at the beginning necessarily of the biblical text, but at the beginning of a helpful way for us to study the Scriptures, or us to know the Scriptures, or us to worship together when we gather on seeing how the Scriptures teach. It, the, the Scriptures talk about us as if we are naturally and totally depraved. We're morally unable to do things as we ought to have done. We're unable to be perfectly righteous. And yet, in a wonderful way, we recognize that even in our depravity, it was God who first chose to love us in such a way that He not only decided to love us, but that He effectively made salvation not just possible, but effective by His Son's death on the cross. By His Son actually dying on the cross and being raised from the grave, that is what He accomplished in order to secure us to Himself. And that's all, you might see that as like a giant backdrop theologically, and you go, okay, but how did I become a Christian? How did I get saved, you might say? And in our text this morning, God willing, you will see and I'll see that it was God who actually drew us to Himself, not in a way that you might stand above a giant well of water, you know, some of you might have open wells in your back home back in the day, But you might not just see someone standing over that well of water and God trying to woo water up out of that. You know, you might stand over that and go, come here, water. Come here, water. Really thirsty. Come on, water. Come up here. That's not how God acts towards His people. Rather, it is God actually scooping that water out of that well, drawing it to Himself. It is God intervening in space and time and summoning you to Himself. That's how Man becomes a believer, and it's an incredible thing to recognize that if he's in charge of that, if he's in charge of this, then if he's in charge of who I am being made alive in him, then I can have complete confidence. My goal, people have asked me the last couple of weeks, why are you teaching these things? Why did this come up in the middle of January 2023? And the reason is, is I want you and I to approach the world and the Word with confidence, when we feel like we live on seeking sin, we can pursue the Lord with absolute confidence in the reality that He is totally and completely in charge. The first three verses of Ephesians 2, I'll be picking up in long form on verse 4, but the first three verses of Ephesians 2 describe your and I's mess, our natural mess, the jam that we find ourselves in. God's word describes us being dead in sin meaning that we are spiritually dead. We can be walking around, but you might use the case of zombies. Remember when zombies were, like, cool to write about 10 or 12 years ago? Uh, You have Pride and Prejudice and a zombie or something like that. We are dead in our sins, spiritually dead on our own, as being under the just condemning judgment of God. We're deserving of the penalty for those sins. And as being, by nature, what the Bible calls children of wrath, as people who don't by our instincts are indulging the desires of the flesh, walking in the way of the world, the Bible points to us and says, that's who you are naturally. Paul paints this vividly in the first three verses and other cases throughout the Scriptures, not simply for some people in Ephesus. He's not just saying that group of people in particular Are dead in their sins. He's not just even talking about Jewish Christians in Ephesus. Those particular people are dead in their sins. He's not even talking to the Gentile world in Ephesus, that that those other people outside of the camp, they're also dead in their sins. But he is saying everyone, you could think of literally everyone as being separate from God's glory because of the case of their sins. Instead, Paul makes it clear that this is in fact the predicament of every man, woman, boy and girl in the world, every human being in this world apart from Jesus Christ is under the just condemning judgment of God. So, we see here that it's a problem. This is is kind of the very beginning of what it means to be alive in Christ, is understanding that outside of Christ, we are not alive, and even outside of Christ, we are woefully in danger of His wrath because we are very absolutely sinful. Every human being in the world, apart from Jesus Christ, is under the just, condemning judgment of God. That's our problem, and Paul has described it in bold and in clear terms in the first three verses. And so we recognize that if that's us, meaning friend, if that is you, and the Bible says that that is you, with like a, with like a pointing princess finger at Disney World, you, the wicked stepsister, would say, if this is you, and it is, how do you become a Christian? What must happen for you to become a believer? And the answer will be our passage this morning. Glance at it with your eyes just briefly where Paul answers the question to the problem of the predicament that he has described so clearly. And I want you to notice in comparison, the first words at the beginning of the chapter, chapter 2, the very first words in your translation might say, and you, meaning all of us, Those words begin the first three verses. Paul is out to describe your predicament as a human being, apart from Christ, under the just judgment of God, and you. But I want you to notice the transition here in verse 4, so brilliantly placed before us. The passage is about a movement, and it says at the beginning of verse 4, but God, and you, but God, the movement from death under the judgment of God for our sin to now, a movement to life in Jesus Christ because of His finished work, and you but God. And so God's Word moves us through this divine action, this divine action of Him actually rescuing us out of our sin, bringing us into the freedom and life as sons and daughters of the Lord Jesus Christ. So, If you embrace the truth that all men and women, apart from Jesus, are dead in their sins, which would be you embracing what the Bible so clearly says on its own, where these people deserve condemnation because of those sins, where these people are walking according to the curse of the world, not walking in the way of righteousness, not walking in the paths of peace, not walking with God, but walking in the conformity of the world. If you are indulging the flesh in the desires of the mind, you're setting your affections on wrong things and are by nature children of wrath. By the way, all those phrases are taken from the Scriptures talking about you then you cannot logically, and you will most importantly not scripturally, come to the conclusion that you then all of a sudden make yourself alive. How did you become a Christian? God. God made you alive. God saved you from your sins. God regenerated theological term. You can Google it later. God regenerated you. How did you become a believer? God brought you from death to life. Where does hope come from? The Word says our help from our sins and our consequences. Our help comes from God from the very beginning. If the psalmist could ask and did, I lift up my eyes to the hill and I wonder where my help is going to come from. God's Word answers the psalmist there, and He also answers from our text here today that your help is not going to come from you. And praise God for that. Your your help exclusively comes from the Lord. All of salvation, all of sanctification, all of eternal glory is bought and brought And sustained by the hands of God. So when it comes to reading the word, I want to be, I want us to be confident in the direction that you can hope by seeing that you are saved by God, by grace, by mercy, for his glory. You are saved by God, by grace, by mercy, for his glory. And that'll serve as the outline of our Sermon, or my sermon, as we go through these words of Ephesians that were read earlier. So the first thing I want you to see, and kind of taking a step back from this text, is who is in charge and what is being executed by that person in charge. You were saved, friend, by God. Now you've already seen; I've already told you about the bold contrast from verse one and you here now to the situation. You were dead in your sin, dead in your trespasses. By nature, children of wrath, walking according to the course of this world, under the dominion of Satan, the Scriptures say, dominated by the world, the flesh, and the devil. That's the picture of you. How many of you would start off your autobiography with the first couple of chapters like that? You might say where you're from, what kind of family you were born into, how kindergarten was really a fun experience, you're pretty good at making sandcastles from time to time, You had so many Legos, but you would probably never start off with, here was me at the beginning, dead. In my sin, a children of wrath, a child who wanted to pursue the Lord or the word or the world, but that's how the Bible describes you in your very beginning. That's the picture of you apart from Jesus Christ. Where does Paul say that our help comes from, though? It's The point of this part of this sermon: we are saved by God. Where does our help come from? But God. In verse four, even when we are dead in our trespass transgressions, but God. In other words, Paul says that our help comes through a decisive heavenly intervention by God Himself. When you could do nothing else, He came to your rescue. And Ephesians' message message is very important because it's not a message to you that your help comes from something inside of you. Your help comes from something that you cannot contribute to your own situation. Your help only comes from beyond you. It is, it is the, the falsity of our world that we see our problems as outside of us. And the, the real solution to whatever we're going through is just our, our inner man. If we can just fix what is in here or actually use our powers from within. I remember the, the TV show Captain Planet, which we weren't allowed to watch in our household, Captain Planet. If they would just join their forces together, then they could take over anything, right? But we realize what the truth of the Bible is is that the real problem that you have in your life is actually in you, and the only solution can come from outside of you, and that is done by God. We have an inside problem with an outside solution. We're all very familiar with the quotation that Benjamin Franklin famously made in America, God helps those who help themselves. And this is really one of the most false heresies that a Christian can do. Now, I understand what Benjamin Franklin was saying. We all historically understand what Benjamin Franklin was doing. You're, you're gonna earn things in life by the hard work that you put into it. So if if you're here and you think, okay, do I just give up on life and the Lord will do everything? No, you need to pour out the cereal before you have breakfast. We all know that, that that's what he's talking about. You wanna, you wanna get something out of your work, you gotta pour something in it. But it is harmful to think that that kind of practice of, Ethical work of doing things for the glory of the Lord in your effort is actually from the theology of what God has done for us in salvation. God helps those who help themselves it may sound nice in a world around us, but it is not what the Bible teaches. Apart from the merits of what Franklin was saying to say the particular cliche, understand that it's actually really bad, unbiblical theology that you and I seemingly live by every single day. We've heard it from the beginning. We believe it in our hearts. God helps those who help themselves. But if you're dead in your sin and in salvation, God helps those who help yourselves. Where does that leave you? You're still dead. Dead people cannot help themselves. And so the Scriptures say your hope of help does not come from within you. It comes from God. Notice the but and then the non pronoun of you or the non-proper noun of you. It says, but God, not but Asher, but Bob, but Bill, on and on. It only says, but God. And so, the Scriptures say that our help actually comes from outside of us. It comes from God. God is the source of your help. God is the source of your hope because He's not preaching. Paul is not preaching here what one theologian calls the Franklinity, the combination of Benjamin Franklin and Christianity where God helps those who help themselves. He's preaching the sovereign grace and mercy of God in salvation, that God in His mercy took the initiative and came and rescued His people when they could not help themselves. Friends, that is our source of hope. It has always been of God and from God. And I want you to notice that if you don't understand that as Christianity's Answer to the source of human hope, then you don't understand anything about Christianity. The root of Christianity is God's kindness towards His people in the sacrifice of His Son to the new life that is brought to Him by the love of God. Consequently, when Christian preachers and teachers today confuse the source of our hope with something in ourselves, they are fundamentally betraying the mercy and sovereignty and initiative of God and salvation that is so beautifully set forth in Scripture. Deniers of God's exclusive regenerating work actually rob you of the great message of hope and comfort that is soul-stirring. It is the praise-inducing, life-changing, and it moves us to a real effective action because we realize that our hope is not found in ourselves, but our hope is only found in God. The Lord is good Paul tells us here, and His goodness has exceeded Himself in the way that He has dealt with us as sinners. He has unexpectedly come and blessed us in a shockingly glorious way of salvation, and you were in sin, but God drew you to Himself. So, the first thing Paul says, is that your hope doesn't come from within you. Your hope doesn't come from something that you have done, and certainly your hope doesn't come from something that you have deserved. Your hope comes from the good and gracious God who has reached out to you in mercy to save you from your sins. The second thing that I want you to see here in this passage is that you are not only saved by God, but almost under that umbrella, you are saved completely by grace. Not only do we understand who is saving us, but how He is saving us. He is saving us by grace, something that we did not deserve. The second thing Paul does in this passage is direct our attention to what God has done. Not only has He given us the who in the passage, but what has God done? And you can see it captured in that little parenthetical statement. Most of your Bibles probably have it in verse 5, scan with your eyes. It might have, you know, M dashes there. Some of them might have parentheses, but it says, by grace, you have been saved. So, Paul says what God does, since we as human beings are in this problem of being under the just condemnation of God for our sins, God saves us, and He saves us by grace, then the Apostle Paul explains what he means by God saving grace in three particular ways. You see this outlined here in the text. How has God made us or how has God saved us by grace? First of all, look at verse 5. Where the Apostle of the Lord, he puts it there in verse 5. It says, but God saved us by grace by making us alive together with Christ. Or it says, he made us alive together with Christ. That's what it looks like. Verse, to be saved by God. He made you alive. You once were dead now you're alive. And then secondly, he says in verse 6, He raised us up with Him. We're not just made alive, but we're brought up with Him. And so, I think through that a little bit in a moment, but just concentrate on the phrase here, He made us alive, He raises us up with Him. And then third, look at verse 6, He then seats us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. And so, the Apostle Paul is saying that God saves us, that He gave us the gift of life. He freed us from death. But it doesn't just leave us wandering in the desert. He made us alive. He drew us to Himself. And then He seats us next to Him in His glorious throne room. And that's not referring to the resurrection of Christ, but the ascension of Christ, where He is ruling and reigning today, living forever and ever over everything. He seats us in the heavenly places with Christ Jesus. And so God's Word explains to us this glorious redemption that has been given to us by God in Christ. So the, the question that been, I've been regularly asking is, is, how did you become a Christian? Hopefully your answer is, God has made me alive, has drawn me up, and has seated me at the right hand. If you've ever recited the Apostles' Creed, if you've ever noticed how the Apostles' Creed is written, and it serves and has served for a very long time for the churches of Christ to help us categorize and understand a, a basic theological teaching or a statement of faith, if you will, about what we believe about Jesus Christ. And in many ways, we see uh, the Apostles' Creed paralleling a lot of what is just explicit in Scripture. That's what, that's what statement of faiths are. So hopefully every church has a statement of faith, and that statement of faith is, is a summary, a statement of what the Bible teaches, what we believe the Bible to teach for our life and our faith. If you've ever recited it or you've ever seen the Apostles' Creed, you notice how it parallels the theology of this text. The Apostles' Creed is a good and helpful way to know, memorize, and use because it's a great statement of what Christians believe. And in this creed, you'll see several things, in particular, about Jesus Christ. You'll confess that He was crucified, dead and buried, and descended into hell. And you'll also say that He rose again from the dead on the third day, and you'll confess that He ascended into heaven. And we're going to see that where it says that He sits there on the right hand of God the Father Almighty. That is, His resurrection, His ascension, and then what's called, theologically, His session or His seat, where He's seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty, where He is ruling and reigning over all things in heaven and earth. If you've ever seen a throne room, whether in person or in a picture or in Wikipedia or whatever, there, there is a centerpiece that all attention and affection is to go towards that throne room, and it's a chair. And only one person is allowed to sit in that chair, and it's the king or the queen of whatever the country that is. And they're the only ones who sit during the entire thing. Everyone else stands in glory, laud, and honor, but they're the ones who go in there with the things they have in their hands, symbolizing their rule over everything in front of them, and they sit because they're ruling and reigning. They, they spit out instructions and law from that chair because they're the ones who are in charge of everything. But I want you to notice what Paul says here. Paul doesn't simply say that Jesus was raised and ascended and is seated at the right hand. What does what Paul say? Look scan with your text. He says that by Christ, the pronoun there, you. Have been raised from the dead. You have been raised up into glory. You have been seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. How? By faith, by which you trusted in Christ Jesus. The, the action of Him drawing you to Himself, Him saving you from, to Himself, Him regenerating you to Himself, his, com, his converting your heart to Himself, causes you to then call out by faith to Him, and that action is what it's like to be a Christian. You have been summoned to the very throne room of God and seated next to the King of Kings. The Holy Spirit has united you to Jesus Christ so that everything that is Christ, we see in the Scriptures, is yours that's salvation. That's what God is saying, that in His mercy He has saved you by giving everything that belongs to Christ in you. He has robed you with His righteousness. And the text says that one day we will rule everything with Him. We, he has given you the benefits of Jesus' heavenly session, ruling at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. He has saved you from sin and from the condemnation of sin, and He has given you all the benefits that flow from what Jesus has done on your behalf. So, who is in charge of this, and what have they done? They are in charge, and they have done the mighty mysteries of the heavens and earth, given us a seat next to Christ. I'm sure you've had something significant happen in your life that has become a basic Marker of your life. I call these kind of pivot points where no matter no matter where I'm going in life, there seems to be this giant pivot of God either drawing me back on the narrow path or Him waking me up to the wickedness of what is there or me just going through a sense of suffering or turmoil or something that has caused me to to realign. But there there are almost signposts along the way of my life. If you're gonna write a biography, maybe these would be the divisions of chapters. You know, something happened and then something else happened, or then something tragic happened, or then something glorious happened. But there are things in our lives, whether they are happy or sad, they are life-changing events that you'll never forget, and is completely redirecting your course of life. You can think of probably 10 of them right now in your own life. Someone got sick. Someone passed away. Someone was born. Something was gained or lost. Something tragic happened or something miraculously happened. Think of a life-changing experience that in part has shaped the very definition of who you are. I am who I am because of this dramatic, positive, negative circumstance. If you want to understand me, you've got to understand what happened in the past. And I think with that frame of mind, the Apostle Paul would be writing to particular people knowing that there were many stories just like that amongst this uh, Ephesian group of Christians. Maybe some of them could have said, tragically, that just a few months before, their dad was taken away from their family and was sent into exile because he was a believer in Jesus Christ. And the Roman government, for whatever reason, saw that as a threat, so they sent him to the salt mines. And this person hadn't seen their dad since. And they have wondered what is going on with this king who my dad used to worship. There would have been stories just like that in here. There would have been stories like that in the Ephesians church then. But Paul recognizes, and he knows who he's talking to. <coughs> and Paul knows that there are 50 stories like that in this Ephesian church about the events that have shaped and changed the lives, shaped of who these people are. And here's Paul saying, friends, No matter what you've gone through, no matter how demoralizing it may have been, no matter how hard or bitter or painful it may be, I want to tell you about three things that are insurmountably bigger than those events that truly, eternally, definitely define who you are. More important than geography in which you were born or schools in which you were raised or friendships that you have developed or vocations that you've had or lost or gone into, no matter the expanse or decrease of the family that's around you or even the services that you've been a part of in the church of Christ, there are three things that define you as a Christian. You were raised from death to life. You remember Paul teaching in Romans 6 where you have died with Christ when you trusted In Him, you died with Christ, and you were raised again from that dead with Him, that you ascended with Jesus Christ and are seated with Him, Christ, in the heavenly places. Now, Paul is saying those things which Jesus had done for you are defining for your life. Those are the pivot points, the the markers of your life, because you have trusted in Jesus for salvation. Your story is now this story. His story becomes the story of your life. His blessings have become your blessings. His salvation... Has summoned you to himself. God made him who knew no sin to be sin. Then, what does it say? That you might become the righteousness of God in him. So, Paul is saying, Ephesian Christians, no matter what is going on in your life right now that you think defines you permanently, I've got three bigger things that define you eternally. You've been raised from the dead with Christ. You are no longer in bondage to sin. You've been raised to the freedom of sons. You've ascended to the heavenly places in the name of Jesus Christ. There is ultimate victory that is absolutely assurance to us in this passage. That's why it's so glorious that when Stephen, in the book of Acts, upon losing his life, being stoned to death because of his profession as a Christian, what does he do? What does Stephen do as he's being stoned and killed and crushed because he's just preaching the gospel? Imagine being killed at your office place because all you've done is explain the gospel to people. He looks up and he sees Jesus at the right hand of God. But what does he see Jesus doing? He sees Jesus there standing. Now, normally in the New Testament, Jesus is seated, ruling and reigning because that indicates that he's the sitting judge and ruler over the world, but Jesus is standing in this passage in Acts chapter 7. Why? Because He is standing in honor of His servant Stephen who is coming into His presence. He sees one of His own. Friends, you and I live in light of this victory which is assured, and it has to come from the understanding that we are saved by grace, and it's not just something that He does because we're pathetic, but we have been saved by grace, and He has made us new, and look at where He places us. Paul is directing our understanding of salvation to the person who accomplished that salvation and then applied that salvation, and it was salvation of grace given to you. This is where the gospel becomes our anthem in many ways and our food in the days ahead, recognizing that it was not just God who saved us and then went on doing whatever we might think He is doing. He has saved us and has brought us and has seated us next to His Son. Friends, that that is who you are in Christ Jesus. Now, the third thing I want you to see briefly is that He has saved us by mercy. We are saved by God, we are saved by grace, and we are saved by mercy. The Scripture goes on to tell you why God did this. This is the mystery of everything that I've been preaching to you for the past four or five weeks. The anthem is that why would God do this? Why did God choose me before the foundation of the world? Why would God let me into the heavenly places if it was not conditional by my own actions? Why did He do this? What motivated God to do this? Did God look down on us and say, you know, they're pretty, they're pretty wonderful and I just can't help myself. I've got to save them. Or did God look down and say, you know, some people down there are just better people than other people, so I'm going to take the best chunk of people and leave the rest, Or did he look down and say, there are some people who are trying really hard, and I appreciate effort, so I'm going to bless their work. No, isn't it interesting that when Paul tells us why God did this, and we see this in verses 4 and 5, think about this. It's interesting, not interesting, it's powerful that when Paul tells us why God does what He does, He actually doesn't mention anything about us not a word about you and I. There is, there is no careful examination given to, well, He did this because. Look at what He says. He says, God being rich in mercy. Why did God do this? He's rich in mercy. Because of His great love with which He loved us. Why did He do this? Because He had great love with which He loved. Then look at verse 5. Why did He do this? He made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and then verse 7, so that in the ages to come, okay, maybe, maybe this is why. He'll give us a case here. So that in the ages to come, He might show the surpassing riches of His grace and kindness toward us in Jesus Christ. What's Paul saying here? Paul is saying, why did God do this? Because of God's mercy, because of God's love, because of God's grace because of God's kindness. This is what motivated him, not something in us, not him looking down and saying that we're just so lovable or that we're worthy or that we've tried really hard, so he has to do this. No, because of God's mercy, His love, His grace and kindness. Friends, why did God save us? Because that's just who He is. Because of God's mercy, His compassion towards us. Because of God's love, His own self-generated concern for our well-being. Because of God's grace, His undeserved favor on us. Because of God's kindness, His spirit of generosity and overflowing that wells up from the heart of God. Because of these things, God did this. It is meant to be the, the most calming and encouraging thing that you can do, men, to tell your wives, I love you, and not qualify it. I love you because I love you. Because if you say, I love you because you're really beautiful, then they might say, what if I get hit by a bus tomorrow and I'm not really beautiful? And you're like, oh, I'll still love you, but you you said that you love me because I was beautiful. I love you because you're smart. I love you because you're intelligent. I love you because you raise the kids the way you do. No, no, no. It is so encouraging, and ladies, just accept it. It is so encouraging if you look at your wife and say, God has made you who you are. I love you because I love you. That'd be us loving in the way that God has loved us, recognizing it doesn't matter what she's like in five days from now. You're called to love her, right? And God has determined to love us. If He made a mistake of loving us at the beginning, how much of a resume have we built for ourselves to be unloving in the meantime? And so we recognize that there is a, as a, there is a lot of ethic that we can take away from this by seeing that God has loved us, and it was a merciful thing. And so you and I can love the people that God has placed us around, whether that's a spouse or a friend or a teacher or a boss. Certainly, we're not going to love them all the same way, but we are called to love them unconditionally, out of mercy, by grace, not because of anything that they've done, because if we only love them by what they have done. We have, we have canceled our understanding of the gospel altogether. Because of God's mercy, he has loved us. In other words, these benefits which have accrued to us from our salvation are due not to anything in us but to God. It is Him reaching out to us in mercy, love, grace, and kindness. That's so important, my friends. It is so important for us to see how God saves us. It is out of His love that He saves us because if we think that there is something in us that induced God's love and kindness and forgiveness for us then he will it will also he will also be able to recognize that something in us could then undermine or damage that love and kindness and forgiveness of God bringing it to us in the first place and the only thing that grounds our assurance is the recognition that God has loved us because he has loved us friends you have to think of the logical and scriptural conclusion in this if God loves you because of anything that you think made you lovable, then what must God do the moment you become unlovable? He would be done with you. But friends, the Scriptures are so clear that the same one who sought us and bought us to be His holy bride, not on the condition of our goodness, will be the one who scripturally, logically, beautifully will keep us to the very end. If it was based on us, we would have the right to eternally live in fear. But because it was brought to us by a loving, merciful, gracious God, we can enjoy. We can enjoy all the goodness of His daily work in our lives. So there's nothing in us to summon that love in the first place. So, also as we trust in Christ, there is nothing that can separate us. Think of this. This is not just a random thing that Paul says in his later Scriptures. There is nothing in us for God to first love us so we can trust in Christ that there is nothing that can separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus. It is not something that we can lose. It is permanent and it is secure because He has reached out to us, to love first. We love Him, as John says, because He first loved us. Now, lastly, and in closing, we are saved by God, by grace, by mercy. We are saved for glory. little we'll change of a word there. We are saved for glory. It's almost as Paul says, that's not all I've got. And he goes into verse 7. Paul goes on to tell you what God's purpose was in doing this. And he tells you, He tells us His goal, the goal of God in this, His purpose, His end, the thing that He was doing with a view to the everlasting, glorious display of His grace. Listen to verse 7. I'll read it out loud. So that in the ages to come, He might show the surpassing riches of His grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus." In other words, when Satan stands up at the last day and asks one more time the question that he asked Job, is God worth living for? God will be able to say, look at this group that no one can number. None of them are here because they deserved it. If it were up to them, they would be enduring the just condemnation of a righteous God, but in them I have displayed my love. I have made them my own. I have renamed them, reclothed them, regenerated them. I have made them by my grace, my mercy, my kindness, and they are evidence that I am worth living for. I'm worth everything. They're the display of my grace and mercy. They are the public witness and testimony that I am a God of grace and mercy, which is certainly the anthem of what a church, many outposts of heaven, you could think of them as little embassies of heaven are to be. Witnesses, testifiers of the God of grace and mercy. And so God will be exalted by the display of his grace and mercy, and that's what we are. We are living, breathing, walking, talking tokens of his grace and mercy. None of us deserved it, but we are now, by the regenerating work, the continual sanctification in the inevitable glorification, testifiers that though we were enslaved to sin, we have now been made alive together in Christ. The late theologian John Stott tells uh, a story in his, his commentary on the book of Ephesians. He tells a story about when he was in um, university at Cambridge. One of his professors was being honored on that professor's retirement. You so might think of a retirement party, right? Cake and juice and, you know, gifts or whatever. This professor was being honored by the board and faculty of his college with a beautiful portrait, a portrait of who this man was, and it would hang in the hall that he would teach. It would be hung in the hall where he taught for most of his life, and when the professor was giving his words of appreciation, so you might see it here. We do this with presidential portraits, right, where they paint the previous president, and they come in the great hall, and they might give some words of appreciation for it, but this is is what this professor said. This is what John Stott recounts, this professor saying after seeing this portrait of himself. He said, in the future… When people see this painting they will ask the question not who is this man in the painting but who has painted this portrait now what he's trying to do is he's trying to say this is such a beautifully painted portrait it captured his likeness in such a way that the that the artist of this portrait did such an amazing job that people will almost see through the person in that portrait and go who did this it was an expression of his appreciation for the artistic skill of this portrait mayor. He had done such a wonderful job that his work would draw attention to itself. And it's also, friends, now take that as an illustration, transport it back to you. It's also a beautiful picture of what God is doing in us. God's grace has been shown to us not so that we are the center of attention and that people are asking, wow, what about that man? What about his name? what about that woman? What about her name? But rather, who did this work of grace in that person's life? Who did that work of grace in her? Who saved that woman? Who saved that man? Who took that person from death to life eternally? Friends, we have to remember that we are the display of His workmanship, even in salvation. And so, the Apostle Paul has pointed us to our hope, it's in God. He's told us what God has done. He has saved us. He's raised us from the dead. He's caused us to be ascended with Jesus Christ, to sit in the heavenly places with Him. He's done this because of His own love, and He's done this for His own glory so that His grace might be displayed in us for all time. So, friends, in closing, again, what happened that made you a Christian? God, being rich in mercy, made us alive together with Christ. Let's pray together. Our gracious and heavenly Father, we ask that you would continue to turn our attention to you in our life and for our hope. We pray that you would speak to us and guide us continually through your word, recognizing that you, the owner of everything, the mediator of all, the sustainer of everything, you have sought us, you have bought us, and by your work you have made us a holy bride. We pray that we would live in light of this with joy and with great hope. pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, for those who are new, I want to transition us into a time of the Lord's Supper where we recognize in Scripture that on the night before Jesus was crucified, He ate dinner with His disciples. And as they were eating, He did something that gave them a picture or a sign of what we recognize, a display of the gospel. And what Jesus did at the Last Supper was He took bread and He took wine. He divided the bread and passed it around, and He took wine as a, and took them both and as a meal. And He said that, that those disciples in that room should eat it, and they should drink it. And that when they do this, they should see this as a sign or as a memorial or as an understanding of His body and blood, would one day be given over for them, and it would happen the next day. Now, we believe that we're instructed in Scripture to regularly observe or practice or carry out this this same kind of action in, in a way. We believe that Christians should regularly, what we call, observe the Lord's Supper because it points us back to Christ's death. At that time, it was pointing these guys forward to what Jesus was going to do for their case. But here, when we observe the Lord's Supper, we think it's for us to look back on what Jesus has done, where at His death, He was killed for His people. At His death, His blood was shed for His people according to salvation for believers. Now, I want to recognize that this meal is for everyone who is a Christian, everyone who has been bought By the blood of the Lamb. So, if you're here and you are recognizing that you are broken and you are unworthy, and you go, I can't go to a table like that if that's what it symbolizes, you find yourself to be a sinner. The instruction from the scripture is to take ownership of your sin and give it over to the Lord in repentance and faith. If you recognize that you, in and of yourself, are unworthy and you have trusted in Christ, that I want to tell you that you can joyfully come to the table. And celebrate and remember and reorient your heart for the finished work of Christ. Paul says that we should examine ourselves. We should confess our sins. We should take elements with confidence in the forgiveness of sins. Now, if you're here and you're not a believer in Jesus, I want to humbly ask you to not partake of this practice because of the significance it is for us believers. Instead, I want you to use this uh, and consider the gospel that you hear and the claims of Christ, and allow this to, in many ways, pass over you. And for those of you who profess to be believers, but your life is marked by unrepentant sin, I want you to heed to the warnings of 1 Corinthians, uh, where you can repent of the Lord and allow this to use a catalyst, or to be used as a catalyst for you to go to Him in repentance and faith. I want you to understand on why we receive this. You've heard me say it before, this is not this is not a sad time, though it could be considered solemn. This is not a uh, just a serious time, but it is also a joyful time because as we approach and as we take and as we consume, we are rehearsing all that God has done for us in Christ. Now, in a moment, I'm going to pray, and then at the end of that prayer, Christians go to those particular tables around the room, though up in the balcony along the sides, uh, some are up front, and take both of those cups. So there'll be stacked cups. Take them back with you and we'll take all these things together. And if you can't get up for whatever reason, don't want to get up because you don't want to be around people, that's fine. One of our deacons will be coming down the center aisle and you just raise their hand and they'll bring it to you. But uh, we'll take these elements back to our seats and then we'll take them together and sing one more time. But let me pray for us as we approach the table together. Gracious and heavenly Father, we ask that you would have this serve as a reminder of Your Spirit's presence in us, directing us towards Your finished work on the cross and Your eternal seat in the heavens. Oh, God, we ask that You would cause us to look back, to be reminded of all who were around, and to look forward to the day where You will do this once again with us. We pray that You would give us encouragement and joy as we approach this table. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.